Hear now the reading of God's inspired word. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray that the Lord will bless us in the consideration of it. Our Father in heaven, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, holy, 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 visit us from on high with the power of that Holy Spirit, with the fullness of your blessing, in the truth of God on the right hand and on the left, that we may hear and be comforted and flee to Jesus Christ, in whom alone we have refuge. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We've been considering the book of Romans chapter 8, Lord willing, finishing chapter 8 this week and looking at chapter 9 next Sabbath, Lord willing. Just to review verses 35 and 37 that we looked at most recently, we saw that God's love in Christ is invincible. When God is propitious, nothing can be adverse to us, the great commentator John Calvin noted. We saw our duty to glory in the love of Christ. As his love is invincible, so let our faith be victorious, more than conquerors. We saw our duty to renew our knowledge of Christ's love in his word, to delight in his love, to inflame our affections. We saw that Christ has appointed his saints to suffer with him, that they may also reign together with him. We are hyper-conquerors, or hupernicomen, or more than conquerors, by means of things that wicked men look at and they say, well, wouldn't that make you lose your faith? Wouldn't that make Christ lose his hold upon you? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, being accounted as a sheep for the slaughter. Isn't it certain that God has abandoned such people? No, they are more than conquerors through those very means. We saw that the wicked will serve a belly God. They will never choose famine rather than Christ. They will take the, the food, not the Lord. Those that love pleasure rather than God will not be patient in tribulation. 
Let us then trust in Christ's love and glory in the sufferings he calls us to, should it be his will. Now then, verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. First there is, I am persuaded. Here is the reason why we are more than conquerors. It starts with the word for. That means he's going to explain something to us about what he has just said. This is a persuasion that has happened in time past and continues to be the case now. This is called a perfect tense verb. The perfect tense means an action was completed in the past, but it continues to have its effect in the present and even on into the future. And moreover, this is a passive verb. It's something that was done to the Apostle Paul. Who is it that persuaded him? Did he persuade himself? No. God persuaded him. We'll see this evening that Paul would not be persuaded not to go to Jerusalem. The prophet Agabus will tell him, whoever wears this girdle, the Jews are going to take him and turn him over to the Gentiles. And Agabus tied himself up hand and foot and said, this is what's going to happen to the man that owns this. And everybody said, Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. But he would not be persuaded. And we'll see why this evening. But notice, he was persuaded by God himself. He was convinced of the certainty of something. Luke chapter 2, or excuse me, Luke chapter 20 tells us that the people were persuaded that John was a prophet. There was no denying. All the works were there. They could see it clearly. This is a prophet of God. So the Apostle Paul has no mere human conviction or certainty, not maybe. He is absolutely convinced by God himself as an oracle from the mouth of Christ that certain things will not be able to separate us from the love of God. And then he lists these things. Neither death nor life. William Plummer calls this the beginning of the schedule of adversaries. You ever have a schedule? It's a list of things you're going to do. Here God gives us a schedule. Here's your list. Here are the things that oppose you that oppose you coming at last in promise from God to his heavenly kingdom. Here are the things that might stand in your way. He starts with the king of terrors. Do you know how afraid people are of death? If they're promised that they will not die, if they do A, B, or C, you can bet most people will do A, B, or C. Do you remember the lockdowns, the scamdemic? Do this or you're going to die. Well, it's absurd. Six feet? You know, you go to the store, they'd have a plastic sheet there, right? You're standing there talking to the person, spewing out all your little particles, right? Okay, so does the plastic magically cause the vapors to go away? Do they just stop for the plastic? Or do they go over? Do they go under? Or do they go around? Duh! They still are there. But because people are afraid of suffering, which leads to death, they will do what they're told. Six feet apart, wear your mask, take the shot, don't go to church. You want to go riot? Sure, that's fine. Go ahead. As long as it's Black Lives Matter. If you want to protest that we're telling you to shut up and stay away from church, no, you can't do that. You're a terrorist. White supremacist. We're going to get you. We're going to arrest you. 
death, the king of terrors, Job 18, 14. Please open to Hebrews chapter 2. Do you fear death, the old pirate said. Hebrews 2, why is it that men fear death? Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you know why men are subject to bondage? Because they do not want to die. And they are afraid that when they die, what's going to happen? Satan is going to torment them. He has power over them. He can get them to do his will, they think, because if not, I'm going to punish you even harder. Well, it's actually the inverse. He's the father of lies. You do what the devil says, you get punished worse. You flee the devil and you come to Christ, he has no power over you. And if you die, does he have any power over you? No, because Christ died so that when I die, I don't answer for all of my sins and wickedness. He already answered for me. This is called the gospel. He, through his death, took away the power of death from the devil himself and men in bondage all their lifetime, subject to this fear of death, he releases them. And so Paul mentions it first. He is persuaded that death, the king of all terrors, what Aristotle called the troubles of troubles, death itself has no power here. Please turn back to Romans 8 if you would. Not just death, but life. Nothing in this life. Life itself, the events of this life, the people in this life, the powers in this life, none of them, he is persuaded, will separate us. Men are either in one of two states. Did you know that? Oh, I, I identify as neither dead nor alive. Well, too bad. You're one or the other. It's death or it's life. There are two states. That's it. All men are in one of these two states. And neither of these states has the power to separate, separate God's people from his love. Then he goes on. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Now the Bible tells us in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation. This does not appear then to be the elect angels or those beloved angels who serve God. What other angels are there? Well, the devil has angels himself. In fact, at the final judgment, our Lord mentions that the wicked will go away to be with whom? The devil and his angels. Fallen angels. Angels who left their first estate, as we saw in the book of Jude. Angels who apostatize from the living God and serve their own desires and wills. These angels cannot touch God's people. Not just the ordinary demons, but who else? Principalities. Now this word in Greek is arche. It means the first or the beginning. In fact, John's gospel. You remember how it begins? 
In the beginning was the word, right at the inception of creation. N-R-K, this is our word, R-K. These rulers, they're the first ones, they're the heads, they're the chief, they're the big stuff. Satan himself is the principality of all demons and he has others under him that do his bidding and other angels under them. There is literally a hierarchy of demons. Does the Bible tell us precisely what that hierarchy is? No. Men with fanciful imaginations will tell you all day long. The scholastic theologians of the Middle Ages or the Jews, they'll tell you all day long what the hierarchies of angels and demons are. God says they're there and that's about it. You might hear a little bit about them here and there, but that's it. He doesn't itch our curiosity, does he? He just tells us what we need to know. There are principalities among demons. Even the great demon, Satan himself, or any of his ruling demons, they cannot sever us. They do not have the power. Nor principalities. Now this, again, these principalities, these first ones, they have this satanic power. We see this in Ephesians 6.12, these principalities. Nor powers, he says. Those powers or abilities that are put forth to execute some task. That's what that word means. Someone has an inherent power that they can exercise, like let's say you guys go to the gym. If a man has power, what can he do? He can lift a lot of weights. If he's got powerful biceps, he can do a lot of curls. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but he could do a lot of presses if he's got powerful, powerful uh, pectoral muscles, right? I get that right? Okay. So he has the inherent power in his body that he can force other things to do according to his will. What are the powers in this life? Well, we have powers to harass and to persecute and to punish in the civil magistrate. We have the power to excommunicate and to trouble by false pastors in the church. There is power to oppose. There is power to bring down. There is power even to kill. And regardless of whether it's angelic or human, whatever the power is, it does not have the ability. It doesn't have sufficient strength to do one thing. And that's what we're reading about. Then the apostle mentions things present, nor things to come. Things that surround us currently. That's what the book of Revelation was talking about. Things that then were, things that must shortly come to pass, and things that must come to pass hereafter. The whole scope of the history of Christ's church. But notice, if you have things in your life right now, they cannot sever this. They won't have the power to do it. Nor if they have enough time and planning and resources, will they be able to do so. And again, think back to the throne room. Why is it that God is so peaceful? Why is it that the sea has no motion? It doesn't kick up waves. Why is it that it's like glass and crystal to look upon? Because no one can assail God. No one can assail his kingdom. Nothing present or even that which comes in the future, none of these things have power over God. Then verse 39. Look with me, please. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the heights are used in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's turn there very briefly. 
We'll look at the usage made of this term, page 1170 of your pew Bibles. The heights. What are these heights? Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every, note it, high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. There are imaginations that men have. The word means to think something through. Lagidzamai. Reasonings. Imaginations. The thoughts of men as they come forth. Man's thoughts exalt themselves. They are high things. They lift themselves up and they puff out their chest and they say, I demand your respect. I demand your submission to these high things. What does God say about these things? They're going to be brought down. If they exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ revealed through his prophets and apostles, Christ will bring them down and we must be in a readiness to punish them, to revenge all disobedience, as verse 6 puts it. So here, notice, these heights, these high things that seek to push the saints away from the love of God in Christ, will they succeed? They will not. They do not have the ability. Please turn back to Romans 8. Nor depths. Often this term is used of the depths of the ocean, where men go down to forgetfulness, into the abyss. No one knows what goes on down there. Some people might happen to go down and discover something now and again. But do we really know all that happens in the depths of the abyss? We don't. And men have feared the abyss from time immemorial. They've feared the creatures in the sea. They've feared demons from the sea. They've feared or desired actually treasures in the sea. They've feared many things of the depths or even the depths that are under the earth, the powers of hell. Those evil angels that fell away from their first estate reserved in chains of darkness all the powers of wickedness and lawlessness all the pretensions of man in his exaltation what about these things can they separate the elect of God from the love of God they cannot and then a catch-all nor any other creature the apostle says that means that all these things are creatures death life angels principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth. Who made all those things? God did. They're his creatures. Things created by him. This whole list, this whole schedule of our adversaries, our enemies, these are things created by God. They're not independent demigods. They're not the yin and the yang. God's the yin and they're the yang or vice versa. No, none of that trash. God created all things. All the devil can do, all that wicked men can do, is corrupt what God made at first. These are all creatures of God. The heathen believe that God, if there is a God, he just created from pre-existing material. Okay, so yeah, there's all this aeons of matter that came out and then 
God took it and formed it into things. No. Everything is his creature. The whole realm, everything seen and unseen, it's all his creation. And none of the creatures of creation listed or encompassed in this final term shall be able. This is future tense. Here we are, and we think, well, they can't do it right now, but maybe if they had a couple years to work on it, then they could do it. Maybe a decade, maybe a couple millennia. Maybe if they just had 6,000 years to work at it, they'd be able to undo. No. Any other creature shall be able. They will not at any point yet to come have any sufficiency to accumulate enough ability to do what? To separate us from the love of God. This word is for divorce, separation, parting of friends, separating things once joined together, dividing them apart. They don't have the power to sever, to divorce, or to part us from the love of God. And notice the word us. Look at your Bibles. What us is he talking about? Look at verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. There's one, one thing about the us. They love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. They're the called. They love God. They're called according to his purpose. Verse 29. They are foreknown by God, predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, they're called, justified, glorified. They have God for them, verse 31. No one can oppose them, also verse 31. God spared not his own son for them, but delivered him up for them. This is the us. God will also freely give them all things. That's the us. There is none that can lay a charge to them because God chose them. They're God's elect. That's the us. God has justified them also in verse 33. That's the us. There's none to condemn, verse 34. Christ died for them. Christ, rather than dying, also rose again for them, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for them. Can they be separated from the love of God if Christ did all those things? If the Father did all those things? If the Spirit did all those things? Is it possible that some creature could accumulate the strength to undo what God has done? It is not possible. It cannot happen. This is the us, the elect of God, those called by His grace, those who love Him, those who are justified by the Father. And this love, he says, that they cannot be separated from is where? Where do we find it? Where do we get it? How do we obtain this? This is impossible. You cannot have this. Yes, it's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know why that is? It's because God loves his son. And if you are in his son, God loves you. So here, notice, this love of God has one object and one object only, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all united to him have the same love he has for his son. Can that be undone? The eternal love of the father for his son, can that somehow fail to accomplish its purpose? God loves his son, and the love he bears for his son 
can only be found united to Christ. Not in our works, be they never so diligent and spotless before men. Not in our supposed goodness, though men might look upon us as they looked upon Paul and said, without, without any blame, I don't see anything wrong with Paul. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There's no fault to be found with this guy. What did he say about that? Dung, rubbish, set it aside. Why? So that I may be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that th which is through the faith of Christ. God loves his son. And if you are in his son, God loves you. I note then this doctrine. God's love in Christ is invincible. It cannot be overcome. It cannot be conquered. God's love in Christ is invincible. Look at the schedule of adversaries and enemies. Some of them are very formidable. Could we stand against one angel in our own strength? You know, the angels are mighty. They are powerful angels. They can inhabit a human body and cause the person to do all kinds of evil things. It's called demon possession. We see it in the Gospels. They can allure people aside. They can bring people into bondage to the fear of death, as we read about in Hebrews 2. They have all kinds of might and power. You can't even see them, and they can do these things. But God, in His great power, has a love that cannot be overcome, even though we could be. Even though we could be overcome by the forces of nature, or the forces of hell, or the high things of men, or the things yet to come, or the things now present, God cannot be overcome. The combined powers of creation cannot overcome the love of God in Christ Jesus. These mighty fallen angels may afflict, may torment, may tempt, may possess, may draw aside and corrupt men, but they cannot undo the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. I say then, flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you have God's love rather than his wrath? Where may it be found? In Christ Jesus, not having a righteousness which is my own, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. There's no refuge, no hope, no future apart from Christ. All is doom and gloom. All is dungeons and dragons. All is death, hell, destruction, and the wrath of the Lamb, as we shall read about in Revelation. But if we come to Jesus Christ, abandoning all hope in the creature, in yourself or any other, if we look to Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, you shall be saved, and you shall be freed from the fear of death, and you shall be secured in God's Son. Another exhortation. Beloved people of God, who love God, who have been called according to His purpose, who have been foreknown, predestinated, justified, and glorified, God is for you. None of the schedule of adversaries shall ever have power to overthrow, overcome, separate, divorce, or part us from God's love in Christ. Rejoice then in God's love for you. 
It is the same love he has and bears to his son and has from all eternity. Take courage in his love. Delight in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear the words of his promise through his holy prophets and apostles. Take him to be your priest, your mediator, your king, your prophet, your beloved ruler. Stonewall Jackson had a saying, If you fear God, you need fear no man. And what is true of men is true of all creatures. Fear God, you need fear no creature. If God is for us, who can be against us? And thus far the exposition of God's holy word from Romans chapter 8.